start your day with the hardest possible thing, what will happen is that we see that people who practice this don't just get the big thing done, which is awesome. They also get a surge of dopamine, which helps motivate them through their next tasks, menial or otherwise, and actually increases productivity overall throughout the day. So if you flip your day on the way that most people plan their day is menial task and then the big thing. If you flip it the other way around, you'll actually notice that by end of day, you've probably gotten more menial tasks done or more administration, more of the other stuff done. You've definitely got the big thing done because you prioritized it first and you have more energy, more stamina, you're more motivated to continue on and to do more work. Welcome back everybody to another edition of the Start It Up podcast, a member of the Education Podcast Network. Today we have on Dr. Bryn Weingard. Dr. Bryn is an award-winning professor, speaker, and expert. And what I loved is she kind of combines the business and entrepreneurial mind with brain science. This has got a ton of really great tips for both students and adults alike. But what I really love is that she completely understands why students need to be more innovative and entrepreneurial. Matter of fact, she's also a professor, so she empathizes quite a bit. For these reasons, I love this episode, so you might want to share it, please. Uh, Speaking of which, that's the way we grow. We get a lot of recommendations about who to have on next, and a lot of times people recommend that on our Facebook channel. That is facebook.com slash startedup. You can always just send me an email as well. That is don at startedupinnovation.com. All right, so here we go, Dr. Bryn Weingard. All right, so now I'm excited to have on the show Dr. Bryn Weingard. Dr. Bryn, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for having me, Don. Oh, man. So when I came across your stuff, I was already excited. Uh, the brain science of persuading, selling, uh, leading, and motivation, I love it already. Um, obviously, you know about my background, and you know that I work with a lot of students. I, I keep getting told time and time again, man, you know, you know what they should teach in school or you know what else in addition to they should teach in school. And there's always these moments of the things that we're not covering. And I think a lot of the people, a lot of the parents say what we're not covering is exactly what you're doing. Um, learning how to persuade, learning how to lead, uh, learning how to motivate. So seeing that we're going to talk in the lens of, of, of students and, and it, it could be, and by students, you can be, you know, 50 and still a student. Um, what, has been the biggest challenge you've seen in the last five years on people understanding like the art of persuasion and motivation. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, fundamentally, and I think this is why I look at motivation, leadership, management, persuading, sales, even from a brain-based perspective is um, what I notice is that people really have misconceptions about what others are really interested in, how, what others, um, what it takes to, you know, um, motivate other people or to, or to get them to want to do something to, to what I call um, non-coercively influencing them. Uh, and so it comes down to, for me, and maybe it's, you know, I guess if you're a hammer, all the world's a nail kind of thing. But um, for me, it's all about, and this is kind of from whence my business popped up, was really a realization that people needed to understand the human brain better because equipped with that information, they were much more effective in whatever they were trying to do. So whether that's in your shoes, Dawn, and you know, I'm a professor, so I'm in the same shoes as you many days in the week where I'm teaching students and those some of those students are 50. Uh, and it's important to have, you know, the tools and, and the understanding of how people really are uh, processing information 
what they're really looking for in order to you know, be able to deliver that content better. And that content sometimes is in the interest of education, but other times is in the interest of sales, as you mentioned, persuading and influencing. Sometimes it's in the interest of management, right? Getting people to be more motivated, more, um, more productive, more effective. Sometimes it's in the interest of leadership. So I'll go in and train leaders in organizations about, you know, what is it that your people are really going to um, resonate with when it comes to developing your followership and developing yourself as a leader. Um, so I always sort of, you know, I look at these business challenges and a lot of the work that I do really just stems from business challenges that clients have brought to me uh, and solutions that I've always been able to sort of foresee or foretell through the lens of brain science. And so, you know, to answer your question very specifically, I think people are missing a fundamental understanding of their own human brain. So uh, let's, let's go over the gaps. I mean, uh, I'm a K-12 teacher and you're, you're obviously college. I hear this from so many people, like by the time they get to the college, they're like, man, these students aren't thinking for themselves. How, and, and now we're just talking uh, straight to, let's just say high school, middle school teachers. How do we start fostering that uh, in, inquiry? How do we foster that um, pathway to start questioning more instead of being so, you know, wait for instructions kind of attitude? Yeah, I mean, it's kind of a billion dollar question. And I think our economy would be better off if we had more, you know, more people sort of, um, as you say, you know, interested in thinking for themselves, and really in developing their critical thinking skills, right? They're evaluative uh, thinking skills that help them sort of develop uh, their own line of inquiry, um, their own line of interest uh, and, and develop kind of answers for themselves. I mean, I think the truth is, unfortunately, our, and you will certainly identify with this, I, I don't, I no longer teach undergraduate students, but, you know, I remember when I did teach undergraduate students and they would be filtering into the system and I would be thinking they're really, they're drone-like in their behavior. And the reason is because our classroom sizes have just gotten way too big at most schools. Uh, and so, you know, we just dumb them, kind of hit them over the head all of their life with sit up straight, act proper, sit down, don't make noise, don't inquire, don't ask questions, don't be loud, don't be different. Um, and so I I think, you know, that it's hard to sort of deprogram that and reprogram them into um, curiosity and into lines of inquiry and into critical thinking um, that will benefit them as learners and us as teachers. Um, and so I know you identify with that. I mean, it's a oh, yeah. Like yeah. pa painfully. So well, the, the yeah. thing that that's, that's the thing that that's been such the catch 22 for years. I'm using air quotes. The good kid kept his mouth shut. They right. set in line. They didn't write outside the margins. And, and this is the thing that I have. This is my biggest bone to pick is that I think that we're setting up our kids for anxiety and depression. Oh, you know, sure. the, the kid is like, I've done it the right way. I, I sat still. I didn't make a sound. And now all of a sudden, like we're, the world's telling them that that's not needed. And it's yeah. not. Right. We need innovative thinkers and you need to be creative and you need to be different. You need to be unique and you need to be critical and you need to think for yourself. I mean, it's just, it's exactly the opposite of what we made them do for the last 18 years of their life, the minute they enter college. Uh, and so I know you identify with that. I mean, one of the things that I try to foster in my students in order to overcome this sort of, again, that, you know, they've been beaten over the head with it for the last two decades, how are we going to reprogram them, uh, is to find their passion. And I think it's hard in 18-year-olds, in but becomes easier as they move into into their college degrees um, and into that type of learning environment. And I think, 
you know, if you have a passion for something, then you're naturally curious, you're naturally on a line of inquiry, a tradition of research that's of interest to you, you'll naturally be more critically evaluative. Um, and you'll naturally be more, you know, you'll have more questions and you'll have more interest in the answers. Uh, and so I think that's one of the solutions is really to foster every kid's individual passion for whatever it is. I mean, and it can really be anything. Uh, but but that's, I think that's kind of, certainly I know in my, my own experience, that's where a lot of my successes come from. If there is, if, you know, we can say that there has been any, it's been because I've been passionate about, a, you know, a specific area or a specific line of inquiry. And I think that's what we have to foster in our kids. And, you know, what's interesting is, and I, and I say kids, I mean, you know, high school students who are coming into our system, our college system. I think, you know, technology doesn't help with that either because it's so highly distracting. It's so highly homogenizing. Um, and so there's just all of these, uh, the, this, the challenges as an instructor, as a teacher, as an educator have just, we've stacked them up against ourselves. And I think there are a lot of um, creative ways that we have to think about how to, how to deprogram, reprogram, get our students, whatever age they are, to be more curious and to have their own voice. Well, I, I'm sitting here nodding my head up and down and saying yes, but at the same time, the unfair part of this is most schools don't allow for this time. I, like, I, it's, this is the maddening, maddening part to me is that, and I've, I, I spoke at a, a, a large keynote where it was mostly superintendents and principals, and I was laying out the evidence on why this is borderline child abuse. And it was, I, I said some fairly shocking things, but I'm like, hey, we're setting them up for a future that isn't there anymore. We're setting them up for a lot of college debt on, on, on dead end areas. And yet the things that people are begging for is the innovation, creativity, design. And that's just, that doesn't exist. And, the, and then I get a, yeah, and, and the thing is like, I understand why they give a lot of yeah buts, but it's like, yeah, but our school board doesn't want that. Yeah, but the, the state really puts down on the pressure of, you know, if, if we're not passing this state standardized test or we're not doing that well, or our SAT scores are lacking, then we're in trouble. Mm -hmm. So, and I know this is also the, the $20 million question, but like, it's so frustrating. And as a parent of three children, oh, nice. that, that the, the world is saying you're doing it wrong. Yeah. And yet we feel this stress and pressure that if our child doesn't get straight A's and they don't do good on the SAT, SACT crap, yeah. then all of a sudden we're led to believe, well, oh, their future is them. Mm -hmm. Where does some of this, like on your end, some of these people that are trying to reinvent themselves, because I know you work with a lot of adults too that are kind of trying to reinvent themselves. Where do they start? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, one of the, so when I say the technology hasn't been our friend, it's certainly not our friend when it comes to their mobile devices in classrooms. But actually what I love about the sort of web 2.0 and where we are with technology in the world and the availability of freedom of information, right, the idea that you can just go away and Google anything is, again, is sort of in that they find their area of interest. And I think, you know, you're dead right. And in a lot of ways, you and I are both preaching to each other's choir. Like we're, we are the choir that we're preaching to. Um, so we identify with, you know, the fact that there's so much research to show, first of all, that 
um, academic achievement is loosely, if not poorly correlated to later success in life and in the world, um, notwithstanding academic achievement, which often helps you with a leg up, but that people who do well in school don't necessarily do well in the world. Um, there's lots to say too that, you know, school in the way that it has been constructed in order to keep everyone organized and attended and attentive and not distracting their peers is really not a place that has been very well, especially for boys, for males, young male minds. Um, it's not a place that they thrive, right? There's, they need to be able to move around, to kick and punch, to um, what we call in biology, rough and tumble play. Uh, they need a lot more movement than they're getting. They need a lot. So the ways that we stimulate their brains needs to be different. And there's great research out there that shows that basically school's not for boys. And so they're already at a disadvantage trying to pay attention. That's not natural for long periods of time. That's hard for anyone. And we know Dr. Susan Greenfield is an example of a neuroscientist who just showed that technology has shortened the average attention span of an adult person in the baby boomer generation was about seven seconds long. And that's shorter than the average goldfish as it is, which is eight seconds long. And millennials, and we're seeing younger and younger shorten, are now at about three seconds of attention span. And so- Wow. Yeah. So talk about the imperative for, you know, um, getting to media and medium using media that is going to answer to a mindset, to a brain space that doesn't have attention span. And while we've drugged our ADHD and we've, we've labeled it, diagnosed it and drugged our kids, I think there's a lot to be said for that actually being the natural core, not with, you know, certainly there's technology, like there's change happening, but, um, and technology has changed more in the last seven years than in all of the history of the earth, right? We've never seen so much change so rapidly. Uh, that said, there's a lot to be said for, you know, catering to that and not taking all change as bad change uh, and saying, listen, we have to, we have to change how we are teaching, what we are teaching, when we are teaching it and how, you know, this is delivered, what media it's delivered in, and especially again, I go back to the brain, but if you knew more about how the brain really functions, you'd realize, yes, we are doing it all wrong and we are setting them up for disadvantage. And then we set on top of that, as you quite rightly point out, cultural and societal expectations and norm normative pressures on their backs to say, but if you don't do that, even though it's not going to help you achieve later in life, if you don't do this, we think you're going to sort of, you know, set yourself up for failure. Um, and so there's a lot that needs, to, I think needs to change in terms of our, a lot of our yeah. goals. Um, now that said, sort of moving past, okay, so those are the problems where are the solutions, you know, I think one of the beauties of technology, although it is changed, but not all change is bad, is that it does allow people a forum for self-discovery, personal inquiry, uh, insight, intrigue, curiosity, questions and answers. And that I think has been critical. And I've seen, you know, at least little nuggets of insight of, of hope, of encouraging, um, you know, evidence that our students are able if you interest them in something or if they're interested in something, they're able to get answers and they're able to, to dive deep. And I think that's the burgeon, that's the beginning of a burgeoning passion. And like I say, I think passion is very critical for having them be more creative, more innovative, think outside that box, you know, um, be different, be critical, be evaluative, get out there, be somebody, be unique. Um, and so I think technology, or at least where we are now in our information age and information era is very helpful for our students and for our learners, whatever age they are, uh, to figure out exactly, you know, what it is that they're interested in. And, and that will be the difference 
um, certainly from a brain's perspective and, and, you know, from a societal perspective, that will be the difference in getting people to engage in um, and to be better in terms of, as you say, and, and probably what I think, you know, the subtext of your podcast and of your imperative out there doing the good education that you're doing um, is to find people who are going to be successful at life, not just at school. Well, I'm glad you said that. Uh, and I think part of that, and just to kind of back up a couple minutes, it is that societal expectation that I think has been one of the biggest rocks to move because I'll have these conversations, uh, especially with parents and they'll go, yeah, yeah, yeah. But not for my kid. You know, there's, there's that, there's that whole first mover advantage or is it disadvantage? You know, the pioneers get slaughtered and settlers prosper kind of thing. They're like now all of a sudden these articles are saying, Hey, the disruptor gets the jobs or they get the business or they get the money. And we believe in those things, but not for our kids. Um, you know, the, the, the student that's, you know, I, you know, what I was going to go to school to be a, I'm not going to make fun of any major, but let's just say it's a major that's outdated. And there's, and, and if a parent like here is like, I may not do that, but instead I want to uh, get a certification and to be a heavy crane operator, right? You're like, that's an instant certification where it's going to be employed. Like, oh, but there's this letdown, like the, all good kids go to college and, um, and while I still think I was, man, I, I hammer on this so much in this podcast that I, I hope it's not been redundant, but I believe in college for a lot of things. It's not everything. It's that societal expectations. And also, and, and that's the college part. The hardest part is then changing up a little bit of elementary, middle and high. Um, I got, you know, I've been getting emails after emails and I'm, I'm proud that we're getting these, but they're like, I now get it done. You know, I've had now first, second, and third grade parents say they don't have any time to be creative because they're already stressing that the test will be next year. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, oh my gosh. So now we've built up this perfect storm. So of course, college professors are saying like, hey, quit sending us your drones. Yeah. You know, cause, or, or, or the business world is like, you know, they, they, they get these kids and they're like, okay, our competition's catching up with us. What do you got? What do you think we should do? Mm-hmm. And they just want to parrot back what they want to hear. And they're like, no, we don't need this. So I, I think that, like, how do we start educating the parents that just because, you know, I had a guest on not too long ago, he was like talking about the difference between just in case learning and just in time learning. Mm-hmm. You know, when I graduated from college in 1995, a lot of things I, a lot of the classes I took were just in case, mm-hmm. you know, I'm going to get a job somewhere because I have a degree and that worked in 1995. Yeah. That absolutely worked. So now trying to educate parents of just in case diplomas are like, you might want to do the data search on that. You might want to look at the ROI and also kind of, you know, just educate them on, Hey, we're telling you, we're promising you the student that learns how to collaborate now and not just turn to the kid next to you and fill out this worksheet, but truly collaborates. And those kids are, are in demand. Um, suggestions on how we start educating the parents i think well there's the first thing i would think is you know there is definitely we've shown that in our economy we're missing and we're not training adequate numbers of trades right skilled labor and trades and so while that's not the you know ivory tower going off to yale 
it's still what we're showing is that because of the dearth of actual availability of those of those talent, especially as the baby boomers retire, that in fact trades are making as much as the average middle manager is, um, and if not, they're in their own company and often end up with with a lot more. They're making a lot more, and so if we look at depends what the metric is you're looking at, but if you look at not just ROI but time, you know, time and incubation. So how long is that person out of the workforce, not learning any skills per se? Um, how long is that person until they actually have started their career? And then what is the upside ROI? Are they actually starting? Most plumbers, as a good example, own their own company. And those practices are built up over years and years and years with goodwill and very loyal people that come back to them, you know, clients and customers. And those practices can be sold at the end of that career life. And so that is actually much more profitable these days than being a middle brand manager at some CPG company that does require an MBA from Harvard. And so you know, what's interesting is the plumber who took two, you know, two years to become the full-fledged plumber and the Harvard MBA who took a four-year undergraduate and two years in an MBA program, six years later and $350,000 in, in probably what looks like student debt or some level thereof, that person is actually at, at much more of a disadvantage monetarily and in terms of both opportunity and ROI and doesn't invariably or not I mean not invariably but often does not end up with their own business practice startup you know entrepreneurial venture that they can then bank on and pass on um, or sell off and so you know there's this workplace demographer named Linda Druxbury and I would so encourage you to have a good look at at uh, her work I think she's uh predominantly Canadian though I've met her in America but anyway she um looks at the fact that especially in the generations next so the you know people you're training and the people coming up into my MBA program those people sort of in that like if they're millennials they're at the tail end the gen z's some of the younger crew are where we have this whole bunch of of trade labor out there that we can't find uh, you know, can't find skilled labor for, or we can't fill. So we've got all this void in the workforce. That's the first problem. But then at the same time, we've got a whole bunch of people with skills that we don't need. Uh, and so we don't have jobs for those people, people like you're describing, they finish college, they have a just in case, you know, degree, they have no work experience, they have no practical skill set. And so they can't get a job, though they're highly skilled. And then we need plumbers and other laborers, an example, and we can't find them. And so there's this both, there's a, there's a two shortages, right? There's a shortage of jobs for the college graduate, and there's a shortage of availability of skilled trades for, for the market. And so there's this, and she's the one who really talks about that, that gap, that problem widening as the baby boomers, you know, leave the workforce. And as the next generations come into the workforce, those they've been heavily, as you know, you and I would probably agree, they've been heavily um, homogenized and beaten over the head with the idea that they have to go to college. And yet they graduate college and there's no job for them and there's no position for them. Um, and there's no enterprise that particularly needs them. Meanwhile, there are all these roles that we need filled that no one is, that no one, skill sets that no one has. Yeah. Well, I, I, uh, this is not me talking. This was, uh, I was listening to Peter Thiel talking about the, the, the really dangerous thing that we're seeing the people that aren't going into the medical field because uh, in some ways uh, the high cost is, ast I mean, like it's beyond astronomical. Like it's, like really, really expensive, and then to factor in the the practice uh, malpractice insurance. He's like, we're starting to see fewer doctors as we age as a population, and then, like you said, that there's so many now new certifications that are needed, 
and we have a huge logjam of people getting the traditional degrees, while at the same time, the future could be theirs if they had the mindset of it. And, and, I, and I think that's one of the things I want to transition to. Like, sometimes I'll get emails and saying, Don, quit saying that everybody should be an entrepreneur. And I'm like, I never say that. I just, I just say that everybody should think like one. That's yeah. uh, one as one of those awakenings I had when I was reading Lynchpin by Seth Godin. Yeah. It was that it was that moment. I'm like, that's the gap. The Lynchpin mentality of you can still, even though it's not your company, you can look out for it at like it is and you can look for opportunities. That's one of the things that that I dig. And, and it's also kind of fostering that mindset, which kind of brings me back to some practical ideas that that people can walk away with right now. And one of them was an article I, I came across from you. Um, talk, talk to me a little bit about uh, eating frog legs for breakfast. Oh, yeah, eating your frogs for breakfast. Um, well, what we know as a good example is that what people typically do when they start their morning is they, you know, they put together their task list, they go to their email, they start checking off their email. And most of us have something we need to get done every day, at least one big thing, right? So there's some, or one big hard, sometimes it's a hard thing, sometimes it's the thing we've been avoiding, sometimes it's the big thing. Um, and people, what they don't do is that they don't do that big thing first. They work their way up to the big thing. And what we know from all energy management science and brain science is that your, you know, cognitive fortitude, energy, willpower, stamina, all of those things deplete to zero over the course of a day. And so when you start your day with the menial tasks, thinking to yourself that you're going to work your way up, in actual fact, what you're doing is depleting your resources to be able to get the big thing done. And so invariably, that's when either the big project, the most important project gets put off to the side. It doesn't get done that day. So we procrastinate or we find that it's done with not nearly the level of quality or, you know, attention or um, efficacy that you might've wanted to have put into it. And so what I talk about is if we really understood how the brain wants to work, which is, you know, to get the big thing done, because then once you do that big thing, you actually get a surge of dopamine, almost like the body's reward for job well done, that then, you know, filters into uh, a motivation to do more jobs. So what we see is that people who start with the big hard thing first, they eat their frog for breakfast. And it really, I developed that saying from Mark Twain, who said, you know, um, eat your frogs for breakfast and nothing worse shall surely happen throughout your day. If your job is to eat two frogs for breakfast, eat them one after the other, and the rest of your day shall surely improve. And I've probably botched that saying, but he basically has a couple that say, you know, start your day with the hardest possible thing. Um, and he didn't know brain science, but brain science and energy management and all energy science and, you know, all the psychology supports the fact that what will happen is that we see that people who practice this don't just get the big thing done, which is awesome. They also get a surge of dopamine, which helps motivate them through their next tasks, menial or otherwise, and actually increases productivity overall throughout the day. So if you flip your day on the way that most people plan their day is menial task and then the big thing, if you flip it the other way around, you'll actually notice that by end of day, you've probably gotten more menial tasks done or more administration, more of the other stuff done. You've definitely got the big thing done because you prioritized it first and you have more energy, <coughs> excuse me, more stamina. You're more motivated to continue on and to do more work. Yeah. I can't tell you how many of the top performers <laughs> that I read about. And this is the one thing I, I like, I'm addicted to blogs and podcasts, but yet that whole winning the morning is now, I'm not going to say cliche because I put it in a negative light, but yeah, I mean, 
even when people say, well, I'm not a morning person. Yeah, you are. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean, you could right. discover that you are. And yeah, you may start off a little groggy, but uh, you know, all these people keep giving feedback after feedback. Hey, win the morning. Yeah. And, and, and then I mean, I, I know some uh, people that I really follow that they take it to extreme, like at noon, they are done. Like yeah. they don't even try. Yeah. Because they know that, that their cognitive ability, or, or they may pick up around five again to do some things, but they know like, hey, circadian rhythms are slow. I'm, I'm done for a while. Um, but that movement, that winning the morning is important. And again, you know, what do we do? Uh, school has it to where it's, well, I remember I was, I was listening to Dr. John Medina talk. And he's like, oh. if you were to design uh, the worst case environment of learning, it'd be it'd be a passive sit down and shut up classroom yes. uh, because he's like talking about how important movement is how important and all these things that we just don't aren't trying to do in school because it it goes against 110 years of but we've always done it this way kind of attitude right right yeah and I think you know it's funny I really like John Medina's work and I think yeah I love his work right. Now, different research shows exactly the same thing, but actually proves that especially for this is especially true for boys and boys who were asked to read a passage or study while walking around the classroom. So the classroom in this case would almost look like um, pods in the middle and then a track around the outside as opposed to the classic auditorium type type setup. Um, lecture style setup and the boys that were asked to continually move while they were reading or while they were rehearsing or revising or whatever those boys learned and remembered a lot more and so what we see is that physical action is very important for for activating the learning and reward circuits and um, attention circuits and focus and what we which sent me high talks about is flow right this this concept of um time and space disappear and you're able to concentrate and you're able to learn um and that is facilitated by physical movement and no surprise there if you look at the human body it's designed to circulate oxygen through a, you know a, a blood system that is increasingly dormant the longer you sit down. And so it's hard to deliver both oxygens and nutrients to the brain, which is already eating about 40% of all calories and 40% of all oxygen. Uh, and so as the longer a person sits minute by minute, they're getting, and this is true of adults as well, um, but they're getting less and less able to attend. They're fighting an uphill battle. They can't win. Um, and so, you know, I often joke about coming home from teaching some, some nights, some days and saying it was just like doing jumping jacks at the front of the room in order to keep people interested in attending. And the truth is, is that it doesn't matter what age they are, or how interested they are. We're setting them up for failure to have them sitting stationary, passively watching us yes. with ability to interact with no dialectic. There's no dialogue. We're not asking for their input. We're asking them just to shut up and listen. Yep. And that is yeah, I mean, as Medina would point out, and, and certainly um, as this research about, you know, boys in the classroom shows, um, it's it's especially dangerous. It's dangerous for anyone of any age and of any gender, but the idea is, is that our brains are designed to work through a circulatory system that's activated by blood that's flowing, <laughs> not blood that's sitting. You had me at Mihai, she sent me high. Um, and, and matter of fact, we, uh, a couple times, um, we actually had him on the show earlier, Steve Kotler, who I swear, if I can muster up the money, would love to put a, a, a little flow hacking dojo right outside the classroom. Uh, because we, like, among the most important things that I have technology-wise at my disposal are walking whiteboards. Yeah. Like, ta like, take a walk. 
because when when some of my students, because I, I know that I've already explained to you the class, but if you're new to the show, I have a class called Innovation and Open Source Learning. And essentially, um, the class itself is about five to six weeks long when we learn how to reframe and learn how to collaborate and learn how to think for yourself. But after that, you tell me what you want to do. Well, sometimes idea generation is tough. Um, and we have different little techniques and tactics, but probably the best thing is I'm like, go take a walk. And if you need to jot down ideas, go take a walk with a rolling whiteboard. It's been, it's been amazing. Of course, you know, when we first busted it out, we got some weird looks like, did three kids just walk down the hallway with a whiteboard? Um, But you know, but like, I, no one's given me a hard time. I think everybody understands why, but like just simple practical things about like little flow hacking techniques. Um, I mean, I think it'd be incredible if we had, you know, um, well, heck, I'm a high school teacher and we don't have recess. I mean, and, and teachers can, you know, and this drives me nuts when I talk to some teachers like, oh, after recess, they're just, they're so hyper. They're at their creative zenith. Yes. Like, like, like if you were an art teacher, I would, you'd probably kill to have them right after recess sure. um, because their brain is on fire. Uh, and, and and I want, and that's why I want you on the show. Like, I want more people to know that like these, what we thought was bad is good. Yeah. You know, yeah. having, having them right after resource is a, uh, after recess is a blessing, not a, you know, fidgety. Oh, they're, they're fidgety. Well, it's because their brain's on fire. Could you give them something worthwhile to work on? Yeah, absolutely. Well, we see here in California that there, um, there's meeting bikes in Silicon Valley, especially they're very popular now where like the whole, like a whole team or pod of five or six people would get on a bicycle and just go for a five person bike while they discuss things. And that's just because again, you know, physical activity while trying to learn is much better. That's also some of the thought process behind standing desks is the idea that, you know, if you're standing, you're at least that much more metabolically capable and able and so, and motivated. And so you're more, your thinking is better. I noticed as an example, when I'm doing um, TV interviews and the like, uh, and partly maybe this is because of lecturing the way that I've done it, but when I'm giving keynotes or doing a TV interview, I like to stand. I hate sitting. I can't sit. I have to stand and walk around because it helps my thinking and it helps my narrative and it helps you know, kind of connect the dots. And it's been shown that even just 15 minutes of walking between tasks or between meetings um, is really ideal for um, reconnecting memory, knowledge, and learning networks, which are, they share, they share networks, right? So learning is just the process of encoding something that you're learning into a memory. Um, And so those, those networks, learning, memory, and knowledge are, are activated by physical activity. And so I don't know if you've ever looked into energy management, but that's another kind of secret that I give away for uh, at some of my talks around how to motivate yourself even when you don't want to, which is that, you know, everyone's heard of a circadian rhythm, which is day, night, dark, light, eat, sleep, right? Everyone's got these hormones that run through their body and no surprise that runs through their body every 24 hours. Well, what we found out is that there's also a smaller cycle, something we call the ultradian cycle or ultradian rhythm. Uh, which operates every 90 minutes. And so the idea there is that you should be putting yourself to work or putting your employees or your students to work for no longer than 90 minutes before you take a break. But what's more interesting is that the research shows that that break should be um, an ideal length of time is 15 minutes with a maximum length of time of 20 minutes. Uh, and that the ideal circumstance for a break isn't sitting or eating or anything else. It's actually moving and it doesn't have to be high intensity labor, but even just walking around will activate 
those memory knowledge and learning networks that are so critical for just about everything we do in today's day and age. Uh, and so if we want to activate those and have people that are more productive, more motivated, happier to learn, whatever, um, then there, there will be people who aren't sitting for anything longer than 90 minutes. And that is historical research. So what we're showing is that that's decreasing all the time. So in millennials, it looks something closer to half an hour. Uh, so just chop it in by one third, right? If the average, um, if the average, let's say, great generation boomer had nine seconds of working memory, of working attention span, and a millennial has three, then we just chop all this research into three. Uh, and so assume that a millennial, let's say, or someone younger than that, uh, has about half an hour of really ability to focus while, while sitting. And then after that, they have to move around and do something else. That's just, yeah. I, when you hear all these things, you're like, let's just start this tomorrow. <laughs> um, so right now there's some parents out there going, okay, great. Um, and, I'll, and I'll back this up with one of the, the best quotes uh, I heard from, from Seth Godin. He said, not all kids are homeschooled. Well, I'm sorry. Let me start that over. All kids should be homeschooled. Just some get home at three o'clock. Um, so you're talking now to parents. All of a sudden they're like, all right. Where do I start? How do I start getting my child more engaged? You start talking about winning the morning. What would be a simple, practical, great thing for a parent to do tomorrow morning with their child? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think incorporating physical activity, like we talked about. Uh, so, you know, it doesn't have to be sitting down and paying attention necessarily. Learning actually happens best while kids are moving. Uh, and so there's ways to facilitate that. And I'm sure you, you know, you're, people are thinking about it all the time. Um, I would say, you know, um, as opposed to being so directive, especially the next generations are really, um, we, and there's good research to show that a more collaborative approach. So, you know, I want to say like partnered inquiry, the idea that you, it's not something, you know, that you're teaching them top down from, you know, a preacher on high but it's something that you both go and investigate because that's, that's, you know, if you teach a man to fish, he eats for his whole life, that whole adage, it's about really giving them the tools to do the research for themselves, to find the answers for themselves. And that I think is the foray into circling all the way back to the very beginning. That's the first tool that a kid needs to know in order to develop their passion, their own curiosity, their own line of inquiry for insight and intrigue into something. Um, developing skills that they're going to be interested in developing and determining the things that they're, you know, that they're going to be good at. Um, and the best way I think to start is to give them the tools to investigate and to do yeah. their own research. Um, you know, I, I'm listening to you say this and then I'm like, cause I believe in all these things and I personally, so I, I have a, uh, my oldest daughter, um, I'm blessed enough to go into work with. She goes to my high school. Well, I'm sorry. I go to her high school. I teach at her high school. Um, but I'm sitting there thinking, okay, what about Grant and Anna? Um, you know, I, I winning the morning and doing something as a family, I, I'm like, I'm listening to you say that. I'm like, okay, then I need to get up earlier. Because mm -hmm. like during swim season, it's no problem. But now all of a sudden swim season's over. And I'm sitting there thinking my, my youngest is eight years old. And I'm like, okay, Don, get out of bed tomorrow. Mm -hmm. Have a fun activity, have a brain activity, get your son moving. Because, you know, uh, he, we can always go to bed a little bit earlier and then uh, start the day a little bit more energetic and, and alive instead of shuffling into school half drowsy. So Yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, more kids than not, and I mean, humans' brains learn by doing, right? I mean, they don't learn by hearing, they don't learn by watching, they learn by doing. And so if you can have sort of partnered collaborative inquiry 
where you're learning together or you're doing something together where they're learning. I mean, it's not just collaborative and, you know, social and pro-social and teaching them all the right things, but it's also, yeah. um, I mean, they're going to learn a lot more. They'll, they'll, they will actually um, attend a lot more and they will be able to encode that into neural networks with that much greater ease. Yeah. All right. Well, Dr. Bren, first of all, thank you so much. I mean, we're totally riffing off one another and I, I, I try to, I try to not to keep yes ending people. Uh, but I, I love what you're doing. Um, and hope, well, thank you. Uh, so tell everybody else where they can find you, uh, some of your resources, things of that nature. Yeah, super easy. It's just drbrin.com. Um, and you'll just find everything there. You'll find uh, what I do, my keynotes, of which there are five, uh, resources, blog posts, research, collaborators, clients I've worked with, testimonials from people, um, you know, sites I like, all my social platforms. You'll find everything there. It's one-stop shop, drbrin.com. There it is. And you're also, you're also a fairly prolific tweeter. It's Dr. Bren Weingart. Um, you can find her there as well. But yeah, obviously, the articles, all these other cool resources, drbrenn.com. Very good. Yeah. I sincerely, sincerely appreciate you being on the show. Um, you've been an asset. And uh, and again, I'm, I'm hoping you're going to hear from some parents. And and what I really would love, um, if, if you guys start doing some cool things, uh, give her a shout back. Or heck, you know, send me an email or send some pictures. So if you start getting up earlier with your child, if you start having them pursue more creativity, innovation, design time, let us know. That'd be awesome. Yeah. All right. Cool. Yes. We'll retweet, we'll retweet it. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right, Dr. Brand, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you, Don. Good luck with everything.